Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to begin to get in our message, but first of all, I want to share something with you. Um, we're obviously going through some very tumultuous times. The world was already tumultuous before this pandemic hit, what, three, almost four months ago, here at least. And now we have all the racial, the focus on the racial racism and all of the, the protests and things that are going on. And whether they're going on and directly affecting you, they are affecting us. And as this all began, I turned, and I've shared this before, I turned to the Lord just in here, I said, God, you've, you've put us here, and, and you, you've not been taken off guard. Lord, therefore, I have to trust that you have an answer for, for us, our role. And God began to tell me to turn inward, and as I would do that, he would begin to show us why we're here and what we're here to do. And so what began, God began to show me is all of this unrest, just as this prayer was praying, is God has not been taken by surprise with this pandemic. God's not been taken, certainly not been taken by surprise with the, with the protests and even the violence because the racism has been here for two, several hundred years and it's, it's, what's happening is it's all coming to a head and God's not been taken by surprise. So he's put us here for such a time as this. But to do what God's called us to do, we have to allow Him to prepare us to do that. And I believe He has been doing this all along, just as I shared a few minutes ago. As fathers, we're impacting our children in many ways we don't even know we are until they get older and they begin to speak things back to you and see things coming back. Sometimes it's not good. Sometimes it's things we put in them we didn't want to put in them. But God's a father and God's been doing that with us. And I'm saying this to say this, especially with regard to the issue of racism. And it's not an issue, it's a sin. I just want to be as clear as I can on that. That, that God is in a process, with me at least, let's put it this way, and I believe in this church, of opening our understanding to one another. Because before we can go forth and do what God's put us here to do, and I'm going to talk at the end of the message today, more specifically about this. We have to come together. And although God has done an amazing thing here by bringing together people of different ages, different races, different nationalities, and He's called, helped, brought us together to worship together, that, that's good in terms of what we see every Sunday outwardly. But there has to be a deeper connection together. There has to be a deeper love for one another, a deeper understanding and a deeper sharing together of one another's burdens. And that begins with understanding. And this has taken me on a journey. I am in the most privileged group of people that there is in the United States. I'm a white male and I live in a community, although we don't have a big house, but I live in a nice, safe community. So I don't face some of the things that some of you face. I don't, certainly don't understand facing what it is to face racism in my life. And, and it's a wake-up call to me. It's like knowing these things are out there, but never really having to face it because I don't have to deal with it in my life. And I'm speaking now specifically to the part of our congregation that's not ever been impacted by this. And that's primarily whites. And, and especially white males, because I'm discovering this is not just racism, it's also a form of sexism, where women are often considered as second-class citizens too. So my sharing is God's opening my eyes of, to see there are things I've known, but I've never let really impact my heart 
And God's calling us to, to, to do this, to allow through the Holy Spirit to do this. And that requires being willing to listen, be willing to understand. And that's a process of growth for us. And, and I want to let you know that this is just a process that's just beginning. I've, I did a whole message on this two weeks ago. I addressed it last week briefly just to make sure I was clear on two points. And I want to say it again today because this is not over. Because, and for several reasons. First of all, because the issues out there, we can't forget them. But more than that, God's calling us to do this. Calling us as a church to truly come together and truly love one another, not with words, not with hugs or bumps or whatever, but to truly care about one another. And that begins by caring about those that are hurting and being willing to share that burden. So I just want to keep setting a focus for this, of where we're going. And, and, and we'll talk more about this as we get into this, the end of this message. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that today is a Father's Day, and and every day is Father's Day with you because you're our Father. And we thank you, Lord. Help us to see today the amazing privilege that we have to call you Father. We ask you, Lord, as we get into the Word today, that you would open the eyes of our understanding for all of us, that we would see the hope of your calling for us, our lives, as your children, as your sons and your daughters that you have for us. Open the eyes of our understanding to see that you truly are our Father who loves us, who protects us, who provides for us, who takes care of us, and who also challenges us and will discipline us because you love us. Father, last week we delved into just the surface of the love that you have for us. And today, may we see even more that love as it's acted out in our, your role in our lives as our Father. We can't do, I can't do this, Father, in my own ability. I have very limited ability when it comes to even understanding what it means to have a Father and to be a Father. But I can trust because of the Holy Spirit and the, His anointing upon this Word that you can open our eyes to see what you want us to see. Father, your word says, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men all that you have prepared for those who love you. But your spirit's been given to us to search the depths of your heart and reveal these things to us. So I call upon the Holy Spirit who lives in each one of us today and who is here present today because there are more of us than two of us gathered here to do what you've been sent here to do today. And I can rest in that, in the assurance that you are faithful. And for that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start there this morning. We've been in a series, which I keep trying to end, about who is this God we serve. And I thought we'd ended it several weeks ago, and then last week I... I began to realize the most important aspect of God, which is His character and His nature, we hadn't really talked about. And we talked about that last week. God is love. He's not full of love. It's not one of His characteristics. It's His nature. So He cannot help but act in love. But the love that God acts in, the love that God is, is very different from human, or what we call human or ordinary love. 
It's self-sacrificial. It's self-denying. It puts others first. It never is concerned about itself. If you want to get some sense of what it is, look through 1 Corinthians 13, which is what we ended with last week. And it is, it is a love that, 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 that is motivated God to create us and motivated God then to redeem us. It motivates God for everything that God does. And then as I was thinking this week, well, I guess we're over with that. Let me think about fathers. They all of a sudden, well, wait a minute. Another aspect of God is He is a father. And so I began to look through some things we're going to talk about today and then really see how it fits in with where we are. Matthew chapter 6. One of Jesus' purposes for coming to the earth, obviously the most important one, is He came to redeem our lives. But one of His purposes for coming to the earth was to reveal to us what God is, is, what God is like as a father. We're going to talk in a minute or so about what the Jews understood him to be. But let's look at just some examples, and there are many we could look at. I don't want to have to take the time to do this. Jesus is talking to his, the twelve disciples right now. Verse 6. But you, he's talking about prayer. When you pray, go into your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you openly. Now you and I read that, and we're so used to hearing as God's our fathers. Some of you were raised in a church where the Lord's Prayer was referred to as the Our Father. So we're used to talking about God as our Father, but the Jews in that day were not. This was, we're going to see in a little while, this was virtually blasphemy. They understood, because there are a number of Old Testament scriptures where God refers to himself as a father to them, but they would never dare to call him their father. In fact, the most prominent name that God uses is the name Yahweh, which was so, when we talked about God is holy, this is so sacred to them that they would never really pronounce the word. They would just skip over it in their prayers. And their prayers were very ritualistic. And again, some of you were raised, I was raised in a church that was very ritualistic in their prayers. The, the, the pastor or the priest would say some lines and you would respond with other lines. And there's a place for those things. But it was so ritualistic we could do it without ever thinking that we were actually talking to somebody who cared about us and was listening to us. And so when Jesus says these words to the disciples, and there was a larger crowd at the base of the, of the mountain underneath them, this was like, and we can, we, I can go personally into my own room, and I can talk to, to, to Jehovah, to Yahweh, I can talk to, to El Shaddai, I can talk to all, the, the, the Almighty God, I can talk to Him as my Father. This was revolutionary. So Jesus came... One of his purposes was to introduce them to their heavenly father as they saw his relationship with the heavenly father acted out to them. And the prayer that we're going to look at in a minute was, was the disciples asking him in one place, teach us to pray because they saw him. We talked about this on Wednesday night. They saw him communicating with this holy God out of a totally different type of relationship the relationship of a son to a father. So he goes on and says, And when you pray, verse 7, 
Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that you will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father, he's going to introduce another idea here, your, your father, not just my father, your father knows the things you need before you ask. So this is not your father who's just sitting in heaven somewhere. He's conscious of you. He's aware of your needs. He's aware that you have needs you don't even know that you have. And then he says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And we all know the rest of that prayer. Let's go to the end of Jesus' ministry, because at the end of that ministry, in John chapter 14, before he's leaving now, this was the beginning of his ministry with these disciples, now he's going to leave them, and again, again he talks to them about God as their Father. Uh, in verse 8, John 14, verse 8, Philip comes to him and said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. So now they, they want to see what God the Father as he sees them. And Jesus said to them, Have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So I came to demonstrate to you what the Father is like. So how can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me Otherwise, believe me for the sake of the works. And there are many more where Jesus refers to the Father, to God as His Father. So the Jews had known God as their Creator. In Isaiah 43, God reveals Himself to them. I'm the Lord God Jacob, who created you, and I formed you, and you are mine. So they knew God as their Creator. They knew God as their provider because in the wilderness, God said to them, I'm training you that man does not live by bread alone. And he trained them because he provided food for them out of heaven every day called manna. And then eventually he provided meat for them with quails that he eventually buried them in because they complained about it. So be careful what you complain about. God may bury you in what you're asking for. And, and, and so every day he was training them. He brought water out of... So he's training them that not only is he creator, but he's their provider. And then we see he's also their protector. There were many times where God told them, don't, don't run down to Egypt and bring their armies up to defend you. Call on me. He, in other words, God wanted them to learn to turn to him for everything they need because he was their father. He was their protector. He was their provider. And another thing a father does is he gives you your identity. So God wanted the world to know that they were a people that belonged to him. And he referred to himself. We don't have time to get into it. We talked about when he talked about the blood covenant. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That was the father of the, of, the, of the Jewish nation. I am the God that belongs to you. And that's how God now identified himself. And so God, so from a father, so we're going to look at it in a minute. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But Jesus came to reveal an intimacy with God as Father that was unthinkable to them. And this is God's heart because He wants us to know He's a Father to us and what that means. So what does it mean that God is our Father? 
What does it mean that God is our Father? Well, before we can look at that, let's talk about what it really means to be a father. And to do that, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to look at this backwards, and you'll explain that in a minute. Because what we do, and it's human nature, is when it comes to understanding God as our Father, we take the concept of Father that we have, and then we apply it to Him. And here's the problem with that. The concept that, that you have a Father, and that I have a Father, was developed in us through relationships that we've had with men. Originally, presumably, with your Father. And some of you may have not known your father. Some of your father may have disappeared when you were young. But even that creates an image of a father. He's just not there. Maybe you had a father that was just there, but he was not really there for you. That creates an image of what a father is. And these get deeply ingrained in us. Or maybe your father was there and he was a good father, did the best he could, but you've realized as you've grown up there were areas where he failed you and didn't do what you wish he had done and had let you down in some way. Or maybe you just had a wonderful, loving Christian father that just was everything you needed, but they're still not perfect. Whatever it is. And then you go to school and you, go to, you get into business and you have other male authorities in your life. And all these things, and there are churches that build this into you, an image of what a father is, and they're even maybe called that. And all of this gets programmed into our computer of what a father is. And then if you're blessed enough to have had children, there's that moment when that first child is born and you look at them and says, Oh my goodness, what do I do? <laughs> Where's the manual? They didn't give me a manual with a child. And so, so it, it, it's, it's learning what this means. So what we've got to do to know what God is as our father is we have to be willing to throw all that out. And we have to let God tell us what it means that He's our Father. Just as we've had to learn to let God tell us what it means that He's holy. Just as we've had to learn to tell, let God tell us what does it mean to, that you're almighty. What do, you, what do you want us to know about yourself? And it's obvious through what Jesus did and what Jesus said and through some things Paul says we'll look at that one of the basic things God wants us to know about in our personal relationship with Him is He wants to be a father to us. So again, I grew up in a situation, I had a father. My parents were divorced when I was seven, eight years old, so I I didn't live with my father after that. I would visit him every other weekend and half the summers and every other vacation, standard arrangement back that time in divorces. And I, but I never, I, I never, but my father, I don't want to get into it all, he was, he was a good man, but, but he, he just, the way he was raised affected how he could be a father to me. And part of my maturing as a father, and my wife really helped me with this, was to be able to look back and understand why my father did some of the things he did and why he didn't do some of the things he didn't do. As I began to see how he was raised and then how the generation before him was raised. It began, isn't it interesting, it began to give me understanding of my father, and that led to healing. And unfortunately, by that time, he had already passed on. But it it helped resolve some things in my heart. And there may be some of you this morning, either here or watching by live stream, and, and this can be a difficult day for you. 
because you look at your father and what he did or didn't do for you and it could be painful. And I suggest to you that you need to, you need to talk to your heavenly father and ask his help to resolve that within you and give you understanding because it's amazing what understanding does in relationships. We've got to move on. So Jesus comes to reveal because God wants to reveal himself as our Father. So, so what, is, what, what is a father? Well, first of all, a father is the initiator of our life. I know it took a mother, but the seed that initiated the process, and I can't go into detail right now, but I think you'll most understand it. The seed that is, was initiated by the male. And so the, 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 the origin, the beginnings of life, and so in the same way, the beginnings of our life comes God the Father. He's a protector. This is what a father is supposed to be. God was the protector of Israel. In Second Chronicles 20, when, there, when, Israel, when Judah, Judah is suddenly being attacked by three armies and the king Jehoshaphat cries out to God, God's answer is, you do not have to worry or fight in this battle because the battle's not yours, but it's mine, says the Lord. God wants to defend you and to protect you as your father. God can do a much better job of protecting you and defending you than you can ever do. And he wants to, and he's faithful. I've watched him do that for me. As long as I kept my mouth shut and didn't try to defend myself, I've watched God do that for me. And he wants to do that for you. He's a protector. He's a provider. God, one of the first things God was able to get across to me, and I have to go back and remind myself, is God was my source. God as a father was my source. And at the time, I had a, a great job in Boston. I was in a large law firm. I made more money than, than we spent as a normal course of events. In fact, multiples of what we spent. But I just, for some reason, that got through to me. God was my source. And I don't have time to go through all the stories of where the, I've seen God prove that out. Because when I resigned that position in the law firm and went to Bible school in Oklahoma, I walked out of a good-paying job to not having any idea what was out there for me. And I'm not saying everybody should do that, but I could do that because I had grown to learn that God is my source. And He may use a law firm, He may use a church, He may use anything He chooses to use, but God is the source of my provision. One of the, one of the parts of the prayer that Jesus teaches us, give us today our daily bread. God wants us to depend upon Him as our source. God is, the Father is, a, is an encourager, the source of encouragement. And God wants to encourage you. He, if you'll turn to Him, His Word can be a tremendous source of encouragement. We'll talk later about how Paul discovered what a source of encouragement he was. A father provides direction for his children. Not just don't do that, but direction for their lives. Sometimes it's just by example. It's amazing the example that you don't realize you're setting. I mean, we've been married, and you'll get tired of hearing me say this, but I'm, I'm thrilled. This Next month we've been married 53 years. And, I, you know, we've gone through some really rough times. And, and, and God is, we're closer than we've ever been before. It's better than it's ever been before. But it's because of God that that's happened. But I remember when our youngest children were in college. And uh, they brought some of their friends home. Where we went out there and we met some of them. And, and, and they said, oh, we're so glad to meet you. Your sons have been telling all us about you and all about your marriage. And I said, what are they telling them? And, and I, well, I did not realize the impact 
that our marriage was having on our children without even talking about it. See, it's not what you say to them, it's what you exhibit before them. So a father, a father imparts not just encouragement, but direction to a child's life. Moms, and this is a generalization, I understand that. Sometimes it's the other way. But generally, mom wants to kiss their boo-boos, and mom wants to make sure that they're comfortable and they're happy, and dad wants them to learn some lessons, because out there there's boo-boos, and you need to learn how to handle when you fall down and you skin your knee. You need to learn. So dad's often more concerned with learning the lessons that are going to prepare you for life and mom wants to comfort. Now again, I know that's an overgeneralization. Sometimes it's reversed, but generally that, that's what's true. And then finally, God, and there may be others, God, a father provides correction. We don't hear a lot about that today. A father provides correction so that the, because the father understands that one of his responsibilities is to oversee the process of his children maturing until they can take their place in, in life, in the community, until they can, so that they can fulfill the purpose that God has for their life. But all of these roles, all of these roles in a godly father are only done in the context of this kind of love. I remember as I had to learn uh, about disciplining my children because I wasn't raised with, with a lot of discipline, actually. But, but I, when I became a, a, a Christian and I was a father, I realized I needed to learn what godly discipline is like. And so one of the things I learned is that, uh, and I, can't, I don't want to go through all of the things I learned because it wasn't a lot, it was very simple. But before I would bring correction, and the correction I brought was the rod of correction to the seat of learning. But before I would do that, I would send the child to another place and I would make sure that my motive for bringing correction was what was best for the child and not out of my frustration. And I would not go there and administer the discipline until I made sure that my motive was right. Because a child can pick up your motive. I've seen mothers in, in malls, and I don't want to get off into this. I've seen mothers in malls get so mad at their child that they're just pounding on them, and the child's screaming. And, 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 and what I realize is the mother's not mad at the child. The mother's mad at herself because she didn't deal with this issue at home, and now it's becoming public what she hasn't done at home. And that's not fair to that child to take your anger out on that child. Most of the time when we're angry at our child, it's because we have failed to do something and we're really angry at ourselves. That's a side lesson. Just amen. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor. I needed to hear that. Amen. Praise the Lord. All right. Let's move on. Now, remember this. God is love. And everything God does for us, everything God does in us, and everything God requires from us is only motivated by His love for us as a father. Jesus modeled this intimate relationship that God wants to have with us. He talked to God, not just as Father, but as our Father, my Father. So it's not just the idea that God is a Father to us, but He's a personal Father to you. He's my Father. He's our Father who is in heaven. And my, I'm your father. 
when you pray to him in secret, will answer you openly. Jesus referred to him as his father. In John 15, verse 17, Jesus, this is what makes, gets the authorities so angry at him, they've decided to kill him. John 15, 17. But Jesus answered and said, he's talking to the Pharisees now, my father has been working until now. You understand how that sounded to them? And I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. So Jesus was challenging people with this relationship. Jesus showed them that God, their father, wanted to be the source of their needs. In part of the, the part of uh, the, 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 the prayer he taught us in Matthew 6, 11, it says, Give us today our daily bread. Matthew 6, 31, part of that same sermon. And very familiar verses. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your, he- your heavenly Father knows you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry of its own, sufficient for the days of its own trouble. So what Jesus is saying is you don't know what your Father's like. He wants to take care of you. So you don't need to worry about how you're going to get your needs taken care of, but what you need to do as, as a child, take on the concern that your Father has. Seek first the kingdom of God, what God wants for His kingdom to come to the earth. Seek first Him and His righteousness, and all the things you need will be provided for you. God wants us to learn to trust Him as our source. The Apostle Paul also had an understanding of God as our Father. In Ephesians chapter 3, one of the prayers that I pray so often for me, for my family, and for you. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So Paul begins this prayer, and this prayer we may pray later on, this prayer is about a revelation of how much God loves us through Christ and how this revelation will be taken by us and be filled up with all His fullness so that God can love people through us in in this world. But it begins by praying, Paul saying, I bow my knees to the Father of of, of the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family, we are the family of God and we, this, we are literally His family. That's not some metaphor. And He is literally our Father. Alright, let's move on. Romans 8. We could spend a whole day on any one of these. Paul here is trying to communicate in Romans 8, that's such a powerful chapter, about what God's done for us in Christ. We're going to read in verse 15 here. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear. We sang about fear earlier. But you've received a spirit of adoption. That's the Holy Spirit. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, 
then we're heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. So we, Paul is reminding them, look, you may have lived in fear of God before, but you've not been get the spirit that's been put in you is literally the spirit that comes out of God. I could have gone to a number of verses, but, but John chapter 1 says that, that Jesus came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. But as to a many have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of the blood, but born of or out of God. So when you opened your heart to Christ and received Him, God sent His Spirit of His Son into your heart just as your father's seed was put in your mother's womb. God sent the Spirit into your heart, the womb of your heart, to birth in you the very nature of God Himself. So you are literally God's child, born of Him. That word of in Greek, born of God literally is the word that means born out of God so you are literally your spirit man is literally God's child in the earth so Paul is saying here we've not been given a spirit of fear but a spirit of adoption we've been adopted as his children born into his family and and, and spirit from whom we cry out Abba, Father. The word Abba is an is Aramaic word that means daddy. It's a very personal... In fact, a number of years ago, we had a, a preacher here, uh, a, a relative of Betty Hinn's, and he, and he was raised as a Christian Arab. And I asked him about this word, Abba, and when I did, he just kind of smiled. He said, oh no, the dictionaries don't do it justice. Abba is like the cry of an infant in their crib when they need something, when they're hungry, when they're wet, when they're scared, and they begin to cry out. It's such a cry that a parent cannot not respond. I spirited with you several weeks ago that when, 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 when we brought our first child home, uh, and and the, his, his pediatrician, which was a world-known pediatrician, said to us, look, here's my basic instructions to you. The first couple of nights, that child's going to cry, all right? You'll learn the difference between when they're hungry, they're scared, or they need to be changed. The rest of the time, they want you to come pick them up. Don't do it. And he said, I've never had a child die from crying. I've had some parents that have come close. And he said, but the point is this, it was so hard to lie in bed there and hear your son cry like that. Everything in you wants to get up and pick them up and comfort them. That's what the word Abba means. So when we cry out, Abba, Father, when we cry out, Father, it moves his heart, whatever you're going through. But most of the time, we do it out of our mind. Our Father who is in heaven. But when you do it out of your heart, I've never cried out to God out of my heart that way that He has not answered me. Most of the time, we don't get an answer is because we're crying out out of our head, not out of our heart. And our head has a concept of God. Our heart has a relationship with God. And that's what He wants. I got to move on. 
Second uh, Corinthians chapter one. Paul also knew God as a source of encouragement and comfort. Second Corinthians one, verse thirteen. Can you get it up there? Okay, yeah. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul went through some very challenging, difficult times, more than you and I will ever go through, most likely. And Paul learned in the midst of this discouragement, in the midst of being thrown into prisons, in the midst of being beaten and almost killed, in the midst of being, being uh, uh, rejected, he knew that when he was alone, that his father was a God of comfort and a God of mercy. But I wanted to get to this. The major role of a father, a major role of the father, is to mold and direct his children so that they can mature and fulfill their promise. In Genesis, whoops, in Genesis 18, God's talking about why he chose Abram to be the father of this nation. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him so that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice and that the Lord may bring Abraham to Abraham what he has spoken to them. So God said, I chose this man because I knew what he would do with his children. I knew that, that he would command his children. And that word command, I looked that up in the Hebrew. That word means to command. To, to, to tell them what to do. But it means in a way that provides us discipline and an order about it. So that it's setting an orderly, disciplined example for that child and, and not just commanding something and sitting back and watching them do it. So the first thing is that he would command them. He would have a responsibility to make sure his children and his house keep, first of all, keep the way of the Lord. So a father's responsibility is to make sure uh, ultimately of their relationship with God. Now he can't make them have it, but he can lead them to it. He can model it for them. Secondly, to do righteousness and justice. Boy, is that needed in the day we're in now. To do righteousness, to live righteously before his children and to teach them justice, which means there has to be justice in the home. If there's not justice in the home, then we won't learn to do justice out of the home. And so that they may bring Abraham to what is spoken, so they may fulfill their purpose. So the, one of the roles of a father is to oversee the maturing process of the children so that when he releases those children into the world, they're prepared to take their place and for God to take over and direct them to fulfill their purpose. And let's go to Hebrews 12. This is what we've been working to get to. Now, and for background here, I don't have time to give a lot of background. For background here, the whole letter of Hebrews up to this point, whether some, many scholars believe the Apostle Paul wrote it, others disagree with that, it doesn't matter. We know the Holy Spirit wrote it, it's God speaking to us. All of the letter, pretty much up until chapter 12, 
is the Spirit of God correcting a Jewish believers. They were Jews who had converted to Christianity and then had been dispersed. And they were being tempted to go back under their old law to mix faith in Christ with keeping all the, all the rituals of the Old Testament. And they were being tempted to do that. So this letter is written primarily to bring correction to them. And so as the letter is coming to the end, the writer of Hebrews is now going to instruct them, listen carefully, how to receive the correction. Now this is not a popular thing in church today. Most churches don't talk about being corrected. And yet the Bible is very clear that the reason the Word of God has been given to us is not just to teach us and instruct us, but is given for the purpose of correction. Because I don't know about you, I need correction in my life. I'm 74 years old and I'm just learning how little I know. I'm just learning how much correction I really do need because when I was younger, I thought I was smarter than I think I am today. And if those of you who've had children grow up, you've been through this experience. When you get older, they get older, they find out you knew things they didn't know that you knew. Okay. So we're going to talk here in Hebrews chapter verse 5. So this is, he's, the writer of Hebrews is instructing them about how God as a father corrects us and why. Verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise... I'm going to read down through it and then go break it down. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by Him. For whom the Father loves, He chastens and scourges... I'll explain that to you later. Every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there among you whom His Father does not chasten? Well, that wouldn't be true today. If, for, but if you are without chastening of which you become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have human fathers who have corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our, for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Let's go break this down. First of all, he's reminding them in verse 5, God is speaking you to correct you as his son out of a relationship. And now in verse 5, he goes on to talk about, verse 5 and 6, he talks about the wrong way to receive correction. First of all, he says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. To despise it means we just shut off. I don't want to hear that. I'm going to change the channel. I don't want like Pastor John's talking about today, so I'm going to watch somebody else. Or we harden our heart to it. Or we say, that doesn't apply to me. That, somebody else, boy, she needs to hear that. Yeah, that's despising. It's anything that deflects it away from you is despising the chastening of the Lord. Nor, second one, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. This is another way of avoiding it. It's called fainting. <laughs> That's too hard to do. I can never do that. Oh God, you don't know what kind of person I am. I can't ever do that. It's if God doesn't know you. It's as if God's requiring something of us that he doesn't know we can do. God knows us better than we know us. 
See, we, we have built into our mind and into our will limits as to how far we're willing to go. And so as we begin to get close to those limits, we begin to work on ways so that we don't actually have to go through that limit. So we have excuses. Well, it's, oh boy, she needs to hear this. Or, I can't ever do that. You don't know. I tried so hard. Those are all ways of fainting. Fainting is a way to avoid doing what God knows we can do. We had a, a dog that my oldest son got one time because he wanted this big male dog and it was the biggest wimp you've ever seen. And so we took him to training school and actually we had a trainer who came out to the house and he had this dog, it was a part German shepherd, part collie I think. Had him sit and then, you know, he wouldn't sit for my son so the trainer came over and said, sit! And he made him sit and he looked at him like this. And then as he stood there, the dog just started collapsing into him. Oh, this is so hard. I can't do that. And my son started feeling sorry for him. Oh, the dog's name was King. He's anything but a king. Oh, and the trainer stopped him. He says, that's exactly what he wants you to do. He's trying to learn to control you by fainting. And so one of the ways we avoid God's correction is by excuses. It's too hard for me. I can't do this. You don't, I, all, I always fail at this. So what does God do? Look at verse 6. But whom the Lord loves, He chastens. There's three words He uses here. He words, He chastens us. Verse 5, He said He rebuked us. And now he's going to say in verse 6, he scourges us. What's that all about? Well, the word chasten sounds hard to us, but it just means to train or discipline, to train your child, train up your child the way she should go. So the word chasten. So God, because he loves us, he will train us. He'll train us. The word rebuke means to give a sense of conviction or shame. So the Spirit of God in you works in you to make you feel, uh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I'm just not feeling right about this. And that's God's primary method of correcting us is through our spirit. Is through our spirit. Uh, I know this, is, this doesn't, uh, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't say this. I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't go to that place. I just, or it's I should go somewhere. And that's God's... So, so the word rebuke means to make you feel a sense of con, conviction. Okay, I, so He cha- trains us. That's, that's chastened. He rebukes us. That, that, I understand that. That now means he, he, I, I feel a sense of conviction. Pastor, what's the scourging mean? Well, I, I've researched this word up, down, inside out. I've done all kinds of exegesis on it. And the word means what it says it means. The, it's the Greek word that means to be spanked. When Jesus was hit with rods, it's that word, mistigo. And I said, okay, God, what does it mean that I've got to be spanked? Now, notice there's a progression here. See, God's first method of correcting us is just with the word. The word brings the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The word brings righteousness into our lives. Then the next mean is, okay, I didn't listen to that. Now there's a sense of conviction on the inside of me. But if I don't listen to the word and I don't listen to the conviction 
My mother used to have the expression, those who don't listen, feel. (laughs) Then God will use circumstances to let you experience what it's like. And one of the ones Paul uses with a believer, a believer who would not receive correction, God said, what you have to do as a church, the church has to discipline him, you've got to excommunicate him, you've got to remove him from your fellowship so he gets a sense of what it's like to be outside the body of Christ so that it will bring him to the place of receiving the correction where he's awakened to his senses to say, whoa, I don't want to go where this is headed. So if we will just learn to listen and be sensitive, we never have to go through the third process. But God does it as a father. Now look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Here's the key. If, he's pleading, if you will endure the chastening, that's the first step. If you will just endure the training, then God literally says in the Hebrew, then you will allow God to deal with you as if you're his son. If you will just cooperate with him, then you're going to allow God as your father to be able to deal with in your son. For what son is there whom his father does not train or chasten? If we allow him to correct. Verse 8. I've got to move on. If you are without chastening, in other words, if God's not chastening you, then, of which we've all become partakers, then you've got to question whether you're his son. Remember one time when we were living in Oklahoma, one of my sons came to me and they'd done something wrong and I had to do something I really had to do with him is I had to administer the rod of correction to the seat of understanding. And when I finished, I always loved them afterwards. I explained, why did I do this? You understand what you did you shouldn't have done? Yes, sir. And I, why I'm doing this? And, and then at the end, I would love them and say, it's over with now. I'll never mention this again because it's taken care of now. And I'll never forget today. He looked up at me and says, Oh, Dad, thank you. He said, I was beginning to wonder whether you still love me. Whoa, did that ever get through to me? See, when parents don't discipline their children, it's selfish because it makes me uncomfortable, because I don't want them to feel bad about me. Most of the times, I don't want them to not like me. We're living in a cold boy, I don't have time to get into this. That's another mess series for another time. Let's go down to um, verse 10, 9 and 10. Furthermore, you've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10. For indeed, for a few days they chastened us as seemed best to them, but He, God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Keep going. No chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields something for us, the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So whatever uncomfortableness you're going through and God working in your life, understand this, God has a goal for you. First of all, if you will cooperate with it, it will not last forever. God will bring you through it. And when you come to the other end of it, you will be so glad you did. I am, God took me through a 10-year process of chastening, disciplining, training, correcting, before he would put me and trust me to put me in this role. And through some of the challenges I've been through, some of the challenges we've been through, I have been so thankful that I was willing to go through the process and only be released into this when God said I was ready. 
because I never thought I was ready. I still don't think I'm ready. But when God released me because I let him take me through the process, then I had the confidence that God knew that I was ready to do what he called me to do. Going to Romans chapter 8, I'm going to have to summarize this because we're getting late. One of the most famous verses that people know, whether they read the Bible or not, is we know all things work, you know, for whatever's going on, we know all things work together for good, right? But there's more to that verse for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So I hate to burst your bubble, but this is not a catch-all for everything that goes wrong. What Paul is saying here is that if... If God is working a purpose in your life, God will take every circumstance and use it along with the, as part of His process of training you and preparing you for the goal that He has for you. What is His purpose? Verse 29. For whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He may be the firstborn among many brethren. Just stop there. So God's goal as a father in you, he's at work in you to do something. And what he's at work in you to conform you literally to the image of his son. I've shared with you before. When I got saved, which is the truth of most of us, all we knew is we invited Christ into our life and that means I don't have to go to hell, I get to go to heaven. But what I didn't realize is he came in with a blueprint of what he wanted to do inside of me. And the next thing I know, things that used to, I used to be comfortable about, I was no longer comfortable about, habits I used to have that I used to think not think about, now I began to think about them. And not because anybody told me I had to stop these things, but because I knew now I wanted to stop these things. And what's going on inside of me. Then I realized he wasn't just cleaning up the inside. Now he's starting to knock down walls. He's trying to expand the vision that I have for what it means to be a Christian. He, then he begins to deal with me about, you know, your life is no longer your own. So, whoa! Now he's adding on an addition to the house. He's adding a second story. But he's building something. And this verse says, what he's building in you is literally to conform you, to conform us together to the image of Christ in you so that the world will see what Christ is like through you and through me. How does this apply to us now? God is challenging the area that God is working in me in, and therefore I've got to believe He's working in you. If not, He will be. The area where God's tearing walls down is in our relationship with each other. Because you see, many of us have been living in a room here that's nice and comfortable where some of our brethren are living over here where it's not comfortable, where things are being said about them, they're being treated as second-class citizens, where they're being looked down upon, and we're in the same house, but because I don't, there's a wall between us, I know you're in there, but I'm not being impacted in it. And God's tearing those walls down through understanding. But we have to be willing we have to be willing to allow Him to do it and see it will make some of us uncomfortable. We may have to face things, attitudes we've had, we didn't know we had, and we may begin to feel uncomfortable, but that's going to drive us closer to Christ, which is exactly what He wants to do. He wants to use our relationships to show us where we are. Because I don't have time to get into it today, we may begin to get into it next time, is the word is very clear. The only way you know what your relationship with God is like is what your relationship with one another is like. I remember one time we were living out on a farm when we first moved back here. 
30 acres of land. I'm walking around just having a wonderful time. It was Monday. I'd preach three messages on Sunday, and I'm outside. It's wonderful. Oh, God, I love you so much. It's so beautiful. And I walked back in. I'd left my wife with four kids while I was having this wonderful time with the Lord. And I'll never forget where I walked in that door. And God said, you think that was wonderful? I said, yeah, Lord, we're so close. He says, your relationship with me will never go past your relationship with her. And I went, oh. And then scripture started flying at me from 1 John. How can you say you love your God who you can't see if you don't love your brother whom you can see? Our relationship with God is no better than our relationship with one another. Because I can't love God intimately if I don't love you intimately. That's not an easy thing to look at. So our relationships become a mirror of where we really are in this love walk that we've been called to do. And then they become the opportunity to grow. Say so what we will do by our normal I got in. What we will do by our normal humanness is we hang out with people that are just like us. Look like us, talk like us, agree with us, all of the same political views. Why? It's comfortable. It doesn't confront anything in me. But when I start trying to relate to somebody that doesn't look like I do, that doesn't talk like I do, that doesn't agree with me, that has, has, has a different point of view, now that challenges me. Am I willing to love them enough to let those differences go and find out really who they are? And that may actually change what I believe. Does this make any sense to you? All right. So we're gonna, we'll go on with this, but we're going to close with a scripture in Philippians. And this has been a verse that's meant something to me and it's really beginning to open up to me now more than ever. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's not, being af- that's not being afraid of God, that's not being, but reverence. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. Amen. So the process that's going on inside of us is God at work in us through the Holy Spirit, confronting things in us, making us sensitive to things, questioning things, confronting us with things. That's God in us. Who's at work in us, first of all, and boy, this is assuring to me, to, to conform my will to His will. Because there's a lot of times my will is not conformed to His will. But if I'm willing to allow Him as a Father to work on my will, one of the things a Father can do is put influence. Remember one thing Lafayette Gale said, God can't change your will, but He can sure put a lot of influence on you to change it. God is at work in you, in me, both to will and then to do His good pleasure. And the first part of that verse is so important. Verse 12, go back to verse 12. Here's why we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It's working it out in partnership with God who's at work in us. But the fear and trembling is, wait a minute, this is God that's working in me. This is why I said earlier, 
The issues that we have to address, the issues that we have to face, the issues we have to bring understanding to, are not, our motive to, to do this is not just the issues that are in the world, but because it's God here calling us to do that. To say no is to say no to God. To say no is to say to God, well, I will not let you work your will in my life and through me. And it's to inhibit and stop and frustrate the plan of God in the world today. Let's go on because I think there are more verses. Verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Verse 15. Look at this. This is where I want to get to. This is the vision. This is what God wants to do here to us. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This church has an amazing opportunity that many churches don't have because many churches, the majority of churches are either black or white. And so the churches that are all white have got to learn how do I get out and how do I begin to understand other believers. We don't have to go anywhere. We're right here. And if we can learn And we will, if we can learn to care about one another, not just a greeting, not just saying, isn't this wonderful, but I mean really care about each other the way Christ cares about us and and bear one another's burden. When we begin to come together, that's going to become a light that shines out of this place that Satan can't stop. I've known something was going to go out of this place, but I didn't know it was going to come this way. But we have to be willing We have to be willing to allow Him. And it's an individual work that He does in each of us right now. And then there's coming a time when He's going to bring us together to do that work together. I can see it. And all we have to do is be willing. And it starts with those of us that are not struggling, those of us that are not suffering, those of us that don't know what it's like to wake up in that intimidation and feeling you're second class and wondering what's going to happen today. Am I going to get stopped by a policeman and what's that going to mean? Or whatever it is. And again, most of the policemen are are wonderful people that are risking their lives for us. But it's it's more than that. It's this, this... We've got to begin to be willing to be touched with the feeling of what our brothers and sisters go through. And God's able. He's at work in us to do that. And I need to end because I'm over time. Thank you for your patience. Father, let's pray. We come to you, and the work that's in front of us is not a work we can do ourselves because it's a work that has to take place in our hearts. But our confidence is, as we've just read, and I can testify in my life right now, that you are at work to do this so that we as a body of believers here, we together can become a light out into this world of hatred, this world of strife, this world of fear. You have put us here, and not just this church, but you've put us here for such a time as this, and you're preparing. Now help us, Father, those of us who don't know what it's like to struggle under racism, those of us who don't know what it's like to struggle with the suggestion we're second-class people to deal with the fear and intimidation, open our eyes of our understanding of our hearts. First of all, to be willing and then to be sensitive and listen and hear 
what it is you want to show us. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters that do struggle under this and have struggled under this. Help them to have the patience to be able to help us and the words and the heart to be able to help us to hear and understand that you may bring in this place not just a surface unity but a true unity of loving and caring and sharing together of life here and that we may then go forth as a light into this dark world that we put us in only you can do that by the Holy Spirit but we say to you today we're willing Father thank you for loving us so much that you provide for us you protect us but also that you correct us because you have an image that you're folding, forming us into help us to see that image and have the hope that you have that we will get there in Jesus name Amen. Before we end the service, I don't want to end without giving you an opportunity.